Good morning, Ground Bible Chapel family. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you have your own Bible, feel free to turn uh, to there now. It's towards the beginning of the Bible. If you're new and you happen to have one under your chair, you're welcome to do that as well. Um, uh, uh, in contrast to the last time I preached, hopefully there isn't any puberty moments. My voice is more or less back to normal, but no promises. Um, we're going to start this morning actually with a challenging uh, story that Mark gives us from the life of Jesus. You see, in Mark chapter 10, a, a wealthy young man comes to Jesus and asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they have a little bit of, a, of an exchange, and it's clear that this man's done a lot. He's kept a lot of the law, and Jesus eventually says, okay, well, sell all you got and just come follow me. And he leaves. And it says he was sad. And Jesus has this moment following this exchange with his disciples in Mark chapter 10, verse 23. He says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a, a bit of a myth that has gone around the church for many years that the eye of the needle was this gate in Jerusalem that was really hard for camels to go through. There's actually no evidence of that historically. So if you've heard that in the past, I'm sorry. Every scholar I looked at has said, no, that's nonsense. What Jesus is getting at here with this exchange is there is something about wealth that can be very dangerous to the soul. And for me, growing up in a middle-class home, living a middle-class life in the wealthiest nation that has ever been, as I've come to this passage over the years, I've always been confronted with the reality that when Jesus here says a wealthy person, he's talking about me. In 2018, the Brookings Institute found that American households had roughly $113 trillion in assets, $15 trillion in debt, so only $98 trillion, okay? But I want you to think about, I want you to think about the wealth and the comfort that we take for granted. We can flip a switch and control light and dark. We can push a button and control the temperature. With a turn of a key, most of us can go hundreds of miles in a few hours as opposed to days or weeks or months. With a simple plug-in, most of us have this special box in our kitchen that keeps food cold and delays its decay. We are so wealthy, and as someone, I, I've traveled a lot, I've spent time with some of the poorest people in the world, and they don't get this. I'm not dogging you if this is you, they, but, but people, know, they just don't understand this kind of wealth. We are so wealthy, we actually spend money to take our cats and dogs to the doctors. I'm not knocking vets, I'm not knocking pet people. I'm just saying, that's a sign of wealth. We are so wealthy that we defecate in our drinking water. And we are willing to let water run in order to get warm before we use it to shower or wash our hands. That's not something most of the world can do. With a swipe of a finger, 
We have access with our phones to the world. Now, I'm not saying any of these things are necessarily bad, but what I want to point out is to Jesus' audience, each of these things would have been a sign or symbol of unfathomable wealth, unimaginable comfort. And when Jesus here says, man, it's hard for a wealthy person to get in the kingdom, I think it's very easy for us to replace wealthy person with American with Zach. And today I want to ask the question, what is it about wealth and comfort that is so dangerous to the soul? Potentially dangerous to the soul. And today we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8 because I believe God gives us some wonderful insight there to this question. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you, God, that your word, though written long ago, can speak truth into each and every one of our situations. And I pray, Lord, that we would have hearts softened to receive what it is that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read all 20 verses, not at once, but we're going to get there at some point over the course of this morning. Let me get there myself. Okay. Starting off, verse 1. Carefully follow every command I'm giving you today. Now, remember, if you're new, Moses has brought the people up. They're about to go into the promised land, out of slavery. They're waiting to get in. They've wandered a whole bunch up until this point. God's preparing them for what he has for them in the promised land. Carefully follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and take possession of the land the Lord swore to your fathers. Remember, that's an important word that we get all throughout Deuteronomy because forgetfulness leads to faithlessness, okay? Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness. That's a lot of walking. Some of us will complain if we had to walk to stop and shop for lunch. Am I right? 40 years, this is a lot of walking. So that he might humble you. That's another important word, humble. And test you to know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, there it is again, by letting you go hungry. And then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your fathers had not known. So that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone. God actually withdrew and then provided just what they needed. So that they may know that he is what? they ultimately need. But on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, your clothing did not wear out and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Keep in mind that the Lord your God has been disciplining you as a man disciplines his son. Last verse for now. So keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. First point. God will use hardship to teach humility. God will use hardship to teach humility. God cared much more about who Israel was becoming than where they were going. And it's important that we see that God shapes his people and he uses the difficulty of their circumstances to shape his people. Now the skeptic in the room and perhaps someone who's fairly new to the Bible, new to Christianity. You look at that, it kind of seems like a bit of a cop-out. Okay, well, great. So God's going to make his people go through something tough because he's bringing them into a particular place. 
But what's interesting about the world that we live in, and even in all of our lives, is we can see kind of intuitively that our bodies and our minds and, and our hearts respond to discomfort and stresses in this world often with a long-term net gain benefit. And I think it's so interesting that we can find actually real world examples that point to the truth of what God did to his people in Israel and ultimately the truth of what he might be doing in our lives. Let me give you a few examples. Rhonda Patrick did her PhD in biomedical science, University of Tennessee. She talks a lot about longevity. And I've, I've read a bunch of her journal articles and, and people from, from other who, who focus on their research. How do you get people to live longer and to live healthier? Two really interesting things that are seen kind of beyond dispute from thread thus far. That exposure to extreme temperatures tactically and strategically leads to longer, healthier lives. We have saunas, for instance. Did you know that regular sauna use increases endurance in athletes and improves insulin sensitivity? It increases norepinephrine, which is associated with attention and focus. One study found that over the course of 20 years, that men who use a sauna four to seven times per week, which by the way, men, who's using a sauna four to seven? But they found that men using a sauna four to seven were 50% less likely to get heart disease and 40% less likely to die of anything. Same goes with cold therapy. I've got a picture of an athlete here in an ice bath. That exposure to cold reduces inflammation, it increases our immune system by increasing white blood cells, it helps muscular recovery and performance. Now, some of you thinking to yourselves, I would, I would give the last 10 years of my life if I never have to do this. <laughs> but there is something about the exposure to these discomforts, these stresses that actually produce a longevity benefit. Don't hear what I'm not saying, I'm not your doctor, okay? Melissa Monte, someone who works in the ER, who attends our church, was on the news talking about how you don't get frostbite. I don't want you to end up in the ER because you rolled around in the snow naked and say, Pastor Zach told me this would help me live longer. That's not what I'm saying. You talk to your doctor. It's not just physical, but also social emotional. It's my last example. Social psychologist, uh, psychologist Jonathan Haidt Jonathan Haidt, amongst others, used this term called antifragile to describe people. That when children grow up and they're exposed to difficult circumstances and stresses, it actually helps them build coping mechanisms to handle more difficult situations when they're older. So one of the ways they one of the reasons they hypothesize that in the early to mid 2000 teens, young adults all of a sudden could not handle difficult, tense, conflicting situations. That anxiety and depression, all these things went through the roof. And they went back 18 years and they saw the explosion of helicopter parenting when children were no longer had to face difficult social and emotional circumstances when they were kids because their parents protected them from them all. That there is something about being introduced to these discomforts in a strategic way that actually empowers us for some sort of long-term benefit. Next time one of you older folks call us snowflakes, you just say, who raised us? <laughs> we see God using the difficulty of the wilderness to shape and humble his people 
to prepare them for what he would bring them into. And honestly, I think about our circumstances and situations today, and where is our best? What is God's best for you? I'll tell you, his best for you probably begins with you on your knees in relationship with him. And sadly, in my life, it's taken financial hardship to actually get me on my knees. It's taken an illness to get me on my knees. It's taken a difficult relationship problem to get me on my knees. God will use hardship to teach humility. He did it with his people. He continues to discipline the ones that he loves today as well. Now that's the backdrop that Moses gives us as the people think about what was, and then he pivots into what God's gonna bring them into. And we start that with verse seven. You got your Bibles. It says, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams, springs, and deep water sources flowing in both valleys and hills, a land of wheat, barley, vines, figs, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without shortage, where you will lack nothing, a land whose rocks are iron and from whose hills you will mine copper. When you eat and are full, you will bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. This is what they're supposed to do. When they have more than enough, acknowledge who it comes from. Verse 11, be careful. I'm thinking about Jesus' interactions with the disciples. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I'm giving you today. When you eat and are full, when you build beautiful houses to live in, which, by the way, would be nothing compared to the homes we live in today, and your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold multiply and everything else you have increases. Notice, he's not saying it's a sin for them to have plenty. What does he say? Be careful that your heart doesn't become proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. God's okay with them having plenty. He wants them to remember where it's coming from. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. He brought you out of the, of the flint water out of the flint rock for you. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers had not known, in order to, there it is again, humble and test you, so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. Two more verses. You may say to yourself, and this is our temptation today, hear this, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant. He swore to your fathers as it is today, that God gave them the power to get wealth because of his own particular faithfulness. And again, he calls them not to forget because forgetfulness leads to faithlessness. Here's my second point this morning. Don't twist God's goodness into your greatness. This is the temptation of the people of God. As he gets ready to bring them in and he knows he's gonna bless them and give them plenty, the temptation is for them to look at all that he's given them and to somehow interpret the situation as a, as a representation of how great they are as opposed to how good he is. Talk about misreading the room. In one 1994 film, it's called Dumb and Dumber, 
character, yes, he's quoting a Dumb and Dumber film in a sermon, a character by the name of Lloyd Christmas who, who brings a woman in crisis and he kind of helps her throughout the movie and they have this interaction. He didn't know she was married. They had this interaction at the very end in which he's pouring his, his heart out to this woman. And he says, what are my chances? And her response are, not good. And he says, not good as in one in a hundred. And she says, not good as in one in a million. To which he responds, so you're telling me there's a chance. I know some of you mouthed that as I said it, you sinners. Uh, I'm just kidding. (laughs) One of the ultimate misreads. Talk about misreading the room. Our temptation when we're surrounded by the trappings of God's blessings in our world is to misread our reality just as poorly. We're tempted to see what we have and to think of it in terms of what we've earned as opposed to what God has given us. I am not frowning upon or speaking poorly of hard work of diligence, the people who work long hours and pour a ton into what they do. But God makes it clear here that at the end of the day, he gets the credit for equipping you with the breath in your lungs, the blood in your veins, the faculties of your mind, that ultimately God gets the credit. As I thought about this, this week as I think about what God said about the people and spending their time in the wilderness, his strategy in the wilderness was for them to have times in which they went without and then he would provide and it would be just what they needed so that they ultimately remember that he is what they ultimately need. And I believe that strategy is a good one for us today as it was for them back then. Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve wealth, riches, and God. And I believe one of the most powerful ways to reject wealth as a ruler in our life is for generosity at times to cost us our comforts. I want you to think about this for a moment. We live And again, one of the wealthiest countries that ever was, if you were a middle-class American, you were one of the wealth, part of the wealthiest groups of people that has ever lived. You may not feel that way because you compare yourself to others, but you are. And we're so wealthy that many of us can actually give and give pretty generously and give more than most other people. And it never actually touch our standard of living. We can give to the church, you give to the missionary, we give to gleanings, and maybe you give to this nonprofits, whatever it is, and, and you're able to give, and it's never actually touched your standard of living. It's never affected the way you pamper yourself, it's never affected the way you entertain yourself, it's never affected your travel, it's never actually touched your life by costing the things that you've grown accustomed to. And I believe that one of the greatest weapons we have in rejecting the rule of wealth in our life is to integrate rhythms. And again, I believe this is scriptural, going back to the wilderness, to integrate rhythms of giving that costs us our comforts. What does this look like in our life? My wife and I have done this over the years. 
We've spent times in our life in which we've in which we've actually gone without internet, or there are times in which we've gone without cable. There's times in which we've we've actually went a couple of years without phones. There's a time in which we would change what we eat specifically so that we can take the money that we save from those things and give it to a cause, to a missionary, to, some, to, to someone else. One year we had a certain amount set aside for Christmas that was planned and we decided we were gonna chop it in half and we were gonna give the rest of it away. And it was gonna cost us some of our normal Christmas, an extremely extravagant, wealthy Christmas, which any Christmas in America is compared to the rest of the world. But we say, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna give that instead. We stayed with people once upon a time who integrated rice and beans regularly into their meals because they did the math on how much money it would save and then they gave what they saved to a missionary cause. And every time they did it, they talked with their kids about how this is the meal most people around the world eat. They don't get all the sweet and the savory that you're used to. Is there something in your world? What would it look like in your rhythms once a month? to actually take a comfort that you've grown accustomed to, to go without, and instead to give that money away. It would actually cost you a comfort, but here's the beauty of something like that, is as you give that comfort away, even for just one month out of the year, during that month, you get to say to yourself, God, I don't need that. That is a gift from you. You are what I ultimately need for a month out of the year. Maybe cable comes around to be renewed and you decide to wait a couple months before you renew it. Maybe you decide to forego eating out for a month so that you can give it away. Maybe you decide to delay a hair appointment. No offense to people who do hair in the room, okay? Or restaurant owners, I'm sorry. Is there a comfort in your life, a trapping of America's extravagant wealth that perhaps you could build into your annual rhythms a sacrifice so that you can spend that time glorifying and honoring God as your ultimate provider. Our wealth and our riches will tempt us to twist God's goodness into our, great, uh, our own greatness. And one of the greatest weapons we have against that is giving it up from time to time. Psalm 24, one through two says, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord for he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's Jesus talking because where we put our stuff, our heart follows. We don't wanna forget and what better way to remember than to reject the rule of riches in our life. Forgetfulness leads to faithlessness. Don't twist the goodness of God into your own greatness. Now he finishes up at the very end in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 19 and 20 with a warning. He says, if you forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them, I testify again you today, to you today that you will perish like the nations 
the Lord is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the Lord your God. God had made a specific covenant with his people and the people, when he presented it to them, they signed up, were in. All right, they were to be faithful. They were to obey. God ultimately wanted their affections. He wanted them to love him with all that they are. And in response, they were to have everything that they needed. Ultimately, they would have him. He says, we get a picture here. If, 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 if the God that gives you all that you are, if the God that breathes breath into you, if the God that fills your veins with blood, if the God who gives your mind its faculties, if the God who clothes you and puts a roof over your head, if we decide to oppose that God, to rebel against that God, or to forget that God, it makes sense that he has every right to take any of those things away. It's his right. Now this closing scripture points to a greater reality and that is that lawbreakers ultimately deserve death. Let's go back to the rich young man for a moment. Something profound about the rich young man is that when Jesus said, sell it all and come follow me and he walked away sad, Jesus didn't chase him. He didn't say, wow, 50% for you, kingdom discount, 20%. Just sell 10, just sell 10. Come follow me, 10%. The average American attends church, gives 2%. Just give me 2%. Give me two. No, he didn't, he didn't do that. He let him walk away. And he has this exchange with his disciples in which they're flabbergasted. And after talking about a camel going through the eye of a needle, he says, uh, his disciples say, then who can be saved? Because in their mind, based on this exchange, everyone would be disqualified. And under the law, the truth of the matter is, you and I know now, everyone is. No one can live perfectly, whether you're poor or rich. No one can obey the law. No one's hearts are perfectly aligned with God's. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one desires to do good, not one. But Jesus responds with this. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Because ultimately our inheritance, our kingdom inheritance, isn't purchased by how wealthy or poor we are. It's not purchased by the size of our homes, the grades on our report cards, the goals we score on the field, the titles and degrees we earn and work hard for. It is purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross, as Gary just mentioned up here earlier when we did communion, where he died for you and for me. And that Jesus is worthy of all of our affections. That Jesus is worthy of our love, that Jesus is worthy of our time and our energy and our passions. And my challenge, my challenge to you this week, I'm giving you homework. This is something I actually, is difficult. Some of you are going to regret you came today. But this is my challenge, is to think about how you, living a life, historically speaking, far wealthier than most of us would care to admit or recognize, how we can incorporate a rhythm of sacrificial generosity that actually costs us on occasion a comfort that we cherish in order to know just like the people in the wilderness and ultimately to be encouraged by the fact 
that our God and our God alone is more than enough. That's what times like that are meant to teach. Because forgetfulness can lead to faithlessness. But nothing, I believe, nothing rejects the rule of wealth like a kind of generosity that costs us our comforts. Think about that today. And know at the end of the day, no matter where you are, how much you have, the baggage you bring in here, your circumstances, that Jesus' blood is sufficient for you. And anything we desire to bring him, any amount of money, large or small, would not be enough to purchase what he already purchased for you on the cross. And that is a gift. We call it grace. So that no one can boast. Bow your heads. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your, uh, the way that this particular chapter has challenged and convicted even me and my wife and our own family over the years. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be numb, that we wouldn't be desensitized to your goodness in our life by the, by the sheer amount of things that we're surrounded with. I pray that we would be able to, by your help, Holy Spirit, to, to force out the distractions, Lord, and to think about, God, what it looks like to incorporate practices. Lord, help us to just recognize that you are enough. Help us, Lord, to see your goodness in the good things you give us. Help us not to turn them into idols. Lord, help me to love you with all that I am. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.